Now, I know I'm supposed to dismiss the children right now, but, but as you go, I just want to share something with you here. Uh, I don't have them physically in my pocket, but let's pretend for a minute. Little, little ones are good at doing that. Sometimes as we get older, we lose our imagination a little bit, don't we? Well, let's pretend that pastor has two snacks in his pocket. I don't, so I don't want to you know, get you too hungry. I, I'm setting you up here. You're going to have to feed them something later. I'm, maybe. <laughs> Let's say that I've got two snacks in my pocket, and in this pocket right here, I pull out, oh, let's say a banana. You like bananas? Or maybe a Nutrigrain bar. That'd be a good snack, right? Some kind of protein. And then let's say in this pocket, I pull out a New Testament. So if I were to eat the banana or the Nutrigrain bar, then I would, have, I would have a nice physical refreshing snack for my body. Right? And it would give me some strength, maybe to ride my bike a few more miles or something like that. Or, you know, if I think about in this pocket, I have a New Testament, that would feed me spiritually, right? So I would eat from the scriptures and I would enjoy the word of God and it would feed me scripturally and, and I would be able to grow in the Bible. So as you think about that and you head to your class, my wife's here by the door, you can go join her. She'll take you down to your classroom. Think about that when you have your next snack. You can have a physical snack or you can have a spiritual snack. And those spiritual snacks are what will carry you through life. You'll remember that. We're proud of you guys. And so you can follow my wife. She'll help you get to your classroom there. And aren't you thankful for these little ones that love the Lord? Join me for those who are going to remain in this service in the book of Matthew, chapter number 5. We continue our journeys through uh, the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount in particular. And I would like to really pick up where we left off last time. And just continue soaking in the scriptures, looking at these next truths. Now this one almost illustrates itself because Jesus uses terminology that speaks to us right where we live. I don't know that a person can go through life and not be able to personally define hunger. Even if they don't know it's the word hunger they're looking for, they know the feeling in their gut when they're hungry. Uh, When you're thirsty, I think that you you can relate with what Jesus is saying here when you think about thirst. And as you're finding Matthew 5, I just want to find a verse in Proverbs. I believe it's in Proverbs 27. I don't want to take too much time to look for it here, but Proverbs 27. Well, there's so many verses in Proverbs, I'm going to have to find it. Verse number 7, here we go. So while you're in Matthew 5, thinking of verse number 6 in particular, I want you to listen to the words of Solomon from Proverbs 27 and verse number 7. He said this, The full soul loatheth and honeycomb. The full soul loatheth and honeycomb. Are you full today? (laughs) I hope not. Not in this sense. When I was growing up, my grandfather raised bees for a while. Anybody raised bees in here? Anybody got bees? Okay, maybe not right now. Yeah, we had some that that have some bees. 
Okay, maybe some don't want your bees around your house because they don't make any honey, wrong kind of bees. My granddad raised bees, and I remember we'd have to get all suited up and go out, and I knew, you know, where to play and where not to play. You don't want to play close to the bee house, cause beehive, because you might stir them up, and then they'll come after you. Uh, he had honeysuckles. He had dogwood blooms. He had all kinds of wildflowers out in the woods behind his house, and those bees would go out and get the, get the nectar, and then they'd come back, and they would make that honey, and it would taste like the woods at my grandpa's house, right? That's what bees do. And uh, people have told me if you have sinus issues, go get some local honey and start eating on that, and it might help some of that dissipate a little bit. Honey's an amazing thing. I read an article, and I've shared this before, but I read an article about an archaeological dig that was done in Egypt, and they unearthed like a 4,000-year-old jar of honey that was still sealed airtight. And the content of that honey, it never goes bad, right, unless the air hits it. And that honey was just as fresh as the day the bees first made it 4,000 years ago. Also, the Egyptians used to use honey in their bandages uh, because there's a trace amounts of hydrogen peroxide in there. So that's a good thing to keep in mind if you ever need you know, some healing. And, and that's coming back in the hospitals, isn't it? Have you ever seen those bandages? They're honey bandages. They're back in, they're back in trend. What do you know? Uh, trace amounts of hydrogen peroxide uh, in, in honey. Jonathan would be a biblical illustration of this. When he was so weary from battle against the Philistines... And this actually got him in trouble with his dad, the king, didn't it? Remember when Jonathan had a little honey, when Saul had commanded everybody to fast? That got him in trouble. I'll tell you, what Jonathan said about that honey was it lightened his eyes. He was able to continue on. Solomon says, the full soul loatheth and honeycomb. I think that there's times where we can get in our life, spiritually speaking, where we're just kind of full in a bad way. <laughs> Let's talk about Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> now, we're far from Thanksgiving, I understand that, but maybe you can relate with this a little bit. Uh, let's say you come over for Thanksgiving and, um, and my wife puts together a nice meal for us. And, of course, you've got to have the turkey, you've got to have all the fixings, you've got to have the dressing. She's got to have the dressing and all that, you know, potatoes. And the spread is there and we come and we just eat. And so when you sit down from the table, you want to sit about four to six inches away from it because by the time you get up, you're going to be touching the table. You understand what I mean. And so you just eat and, and uh, if you're, you know, maybe given to uh, spending time with family and, and that nature. Maybe you find a nice recliner, guys, you know, out in the, 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 the room there, and you just kind of sit with the sedative in that turkey starts to kick in. And you just, you know, you get up from the table thinking, man, I just don't know if I ever really want to eat again. And then lo and behold, about, you know, 6 or 7 o'clock in the evening, what are you doing, guys? You're back in the refrigerator, <laughs> pilfering around, trying to find something else. As we think about the, the full soul, loathing and honeycomb, uh, I've had you know, occurrences like this in my life where I've, I've sat down and I've started eating and man, I had a nice cup of orange juice and that orange juice was so refreshing. And then maybe I had a little cereal with my breakfast and by the time I got through the milk and I go back to the orange juice, it was a little bitter. I'm like, I don't know, that didn't taste like the orange juice I had to start smelling it. Did the orange juice change? No, the orange juice didn't change a bit. Who changed? I did. Because I, I started getting full. And that which was so sweet and that which was so refreshing before, now I'm kind of loathing it. It's like, okay, let's get this over with. Let's just down the rest of this juice because <laughs> it doesn't taste as good as it did when I first sat down. The full soul loatheth and honeycomb. But, I'm glad the verse doesn't end there. 
And this leads us to Matthew 5, 6. I'm going somewhere with this. But to the hungry soul, every bitter thing is sweet. I believe God created us to have a hunger that would continually come back. You know, we're created that way, and that's probably a good thing, because if we were never hungry, maybe we would deplete our body of nutrients that we needed because we would ignore it. We wouldn't know it was there. Same, you know, pain triggers, let us know something hurts, and we need to maybe get it checked out and those things. Alert systems, all of that's connected in our body. We're fearfully and wonderfully made. But let's think about what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 6. As we continue in the, in the Beatitudes, Jesus sitting on the hillside there with his disciples and the multitudes with an earshot, having already said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We look at chapter 5 and verse number 6 and see this last part, really under the heading that I have given it, of learning to lean on the Lord. Working from the inside out, the character that we are to have as followers of Christ. Jesus says, blessed are they which do hunger. Notice it's do hunger. Not once hungered or have hungered in the past. They which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. The promise here is, they shall be filled. I think I could meditate on this verse alone for the rest of my life and really not exhaust the truth of what's here. This is one of those statements that Jesus made that is, is simple you know, words. The vocabulary is not hard to grasp necessarily. The concepts, hungering and thirsting and, and righteousness and, and those things, being filled, being contented. But when you put them all together in this formula that Jesus has used and you start to delve into the theology and the truth behind it, it just leads you further and further away from the world and closer and closer to God. And I think that was Jesus' intent. One preacher who's now with the Lord, he said, Jesus Christ is heaven's bread for man's deepest hunger. That's a great statement. Jesus Christ, heaven's bread for man's Deepest hunger. The world uses, uh, uses terminology, psychology, and different things. They'll actually use Greek language to talk about hungering and thirsting. The word, uh, the word in the original language is an interesting one to study. But I, I just want to challenge you to have an appetite. Have an appetite for the things of God. There is a secret for satisfaction as you follow the Lord. We've heard tremendous testimonies, giving God glory this morning. And I think these testimonies are indicative of a hunger and a thirst, that this world is not all that there is, that there is something greater beyond. And this hunger and thirst is something that only, only God can fill. In his book, Sahara Unveiled, William Langweish, I probably just raked his name over the coals, and I apologize for that. But he tells a story of an Algerian named Laglag and a companion whose truck broke down while they were crossing the desert. Remember, this is, this is Sahara unveiled. <laughs> okay, that's which desert they're in. They nearly died of thirst during the three weeks that they waited before being rescued. And as their bodies dehydrated, they became willing to drink anything in hopes of 
of quenching their terrible thirst. The sun, the scorching sun, forced them to take shade underneath the truck where they dug out a shallow trench just to try to survive. Day after day, they're laying there. No food, but even if they had it, I don't, I'm not sure that they would have eaten it because they'd be afraid that it would magnify their thirst. You know, if you don't have enough water in your body to help consume that food, it's just going to make things worse. So dehydration, starvation, is what kills wanderers in the desert. Dehydration. Thirst is the most terrible of all human sufferings. Physiologists, I mentioned the Greek-based words describing the stages of human thirst. Listen, this is interesting to me because as you study the words, you'll see the, the Greek words behind what Jesus says in thirsting and what they use today. Human thirst stages. For example, in the Sahara Desert, dipsogenic. Dipsogenic. That, that would mean thirst-provoking. Right? Genesis, dipso-thirst, you're provoking thirst. In Laglag's case, they might say he progressed from eudipsia, ordinary thirst, that's eudipsia, through bouts of hyperdipsia, that's temporary intense thirst, hyperdipsia, all the way on to polydipsia, sustained excessive thirst, is how they define it. Polydipsia means it's the kind of thirst that would drive you to drink anything to try to live. Anything. Now, let that sink in. Just to try to survive. For word enthusiasts, you know, that's heady stuff, right? We get into etymology, and we had one preacher over the weekend say, that's a really big word. I appreciated him. I think it was Brother Gaius from Craig. He said, etymology, that's a big word. Uh, But as we think about, you know, the words that are used, I'll tell you, the lexicon, I don't think you'll find a dictionary definition in any dictionary or lexicon that's really going to do justice you won't find a word to fit what Laglag was going through in the Sahara Desert. You might try, but I, I guarantee you're not going to coin a suitable word for drinking rusty radiator water. Radiator water. That's what Laglag resorted to, to drinking. Do you, uh, those who are mechanics in here, maybe not even mechanics, you, you understand what's in your radiator, right? Laglag, in essence, resorted to drinking poison because of polydipsia. It had driven him to the extreme that in order to survive, they're willing to, to drink, in effect, poison. Can I tell you, I'm convinced today that so many people are doing the same thing spiritually. Think about what this world has to offer. How many people live their life with strongholds? They live their life allowing things in their life because they're craving, whether we name it money or sex or power. They're trying to quench a spiritual thirst. And as Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes, we know everything under the sun leaves us lacking. There is no deep satisfaction apart from God. Living, living after God. That's the only thing that will quench a spiritual thirst. That will, that's the only thing that will fill you with God's goodness is finding Him. But when you think about the world's thirst quenchers, in reality, sex, money, power, drugs, whatever you want to say. I mean, we're in Colorado, right? 
the sky's the limit on some of that stuff. It, it never ceases to amaze me the ways that people dream up to sin against God here in Colorado. Shouldn't be amazed. What a dangerous, what a poisonous substitute for the living water that Jesus Christ has promised. The living water that He told a, a thirsty woman by a well one day, Sir, if you give me this water, I wouldn't have to come here to draw again. Remember that? The woman of Samaria? If I could just have this water. That's living water. Yeah, I came to the well, and up from my soul came a spring of life, eternal life. Not only did my thirst get quenched when I found God, no, I continue to hunger after Him. I haven't arrived. Paul said I've not arrived. Forgetting those things which are behind, I press toward the mark. Paul, even as he wrote that verse in Philippians 4.13, he was still hungry for God. He was still thirsting after that prize for the high call of the righteousness in Christ Jesus. Do you see how that fits with Matthew 5.6? Are you full today? Then you're not hungry. When you get hungry and you have this almost uh, aching down inside of you, have you ever been that hungry where it almost hurt? Some of us would probably call that hangry. You get around somebody who's hangry. And we're not talking about getting hangry. I'm talking about hungering after God, that deep down yearning that only He can satisfy. So many people never find it. They go to the world's thirst quenchers, which are in reality spiritual poison, a dangerous substitute for the living water that Jesus Christ Jesus Christ promised those that would come to Him. As we think about hungering and thirsting after righteousness, we've talked about learning to lean on the Lord by finding His favor and spiritual dependence. Are you poor in spirit? Are you bankrupt? Are you destitute before God? We've covered uh, what Jesus said about finding His favor in, in sorrowful reflection because as we're destitute before Him, it leads us to consider personal sin, sin in the world around us, and we realize that we're poor in spirit. And it causes us to mourn and shed tears before God. Do we mourn over sin in particular? We talked last time about finding His favor in gentle strength, meekness. And what an illustration that we had with Moses, the meekest man. And I bring that back to your mind about how he let God take up his cause. And he was meek in that. And the promise that Jesus gave is that the meek shall inherit the earth we covered the tests of meekness. Now I want to spend just a few moments looking at, at this with you about finding His favor in longing for righteousness. I mean true righteousness. No one will ever have a problem with you for doing good in a humanitarian sense. But the moment you start doing righteously is the moment you're going to have plenty of enemies. Because if you're doing righteously, that means somebody has to be wrong somewhere along the line. And Paul said it this way, Let God be true and every man a liar. There is one source of truth, unadulterated truth. It is this blessed holy book. And anywhere that the world or the flesh would cause us to depart from this, we are on faulty ground. We are not on firm footing. And as we think about longing after righteousness, when I studied and preached through the book of Romans, I came across verses 16, 17, and 18, and I understood that in a way that really kind of it was a light bulb moment for me. I'd read it so many times before that. And that's the passage that talks about the, the gospel being the power of God. You know, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God and the salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But if you look at what Paul is doing there, 
he is talking about revelation. I illustrated it this way. We had a little fun. You know, how many of you used to watch those door game shows? You know, behind door number one, behind door number two kind of thing. You remember those? They used to be really big. Maybe they have something like that today. Behind curtain number one is, and you can pick and you choose these things. Well, if you approach it that way and just illustrate what Paul's doing there. Behind door number one, Paul reveals to us, or really God does through Paul in the Holy Spirit. You open that door and behind that is the righteousness of God. For herein, where? In the gospel, in the good news that Jesus Christ died, was buried, and rose again for the sins of those that would believe on Him. Yea, for all sins. He died to to rescue many. Behind that door of the gospel, we open that and we see the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. If you ever expect to stand before a thrice holy God, And find pardon for the sin that besets you and the sin that plagues your life. You will not make it without the righteousness of Christ imputed to your life. Not not inherent in you. The righteousness that Jesus is talking about here could be looked at in two ways. As one old preacher said, it could be inherent righteousness. We want to do what's right naturally, but that's not going to get you to heaven because there's no amount of good you can do to ever cover the amount of sin that you've already committed against God. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Every one of us. Behind door number one is revealed the righteousness of God. And that's through Jesus Christ. You can have His righteousness. You can be declared righteous in God's eyes, being justified by grace through faith. That's door number one. That's a great door, isn't it? I love door number one. Door number one is, was my way out of, of hell, was my way out of sin because I believed on Jesus and got gloriously saved at age 14. I trusted Christ. And it wasn't anything that I did. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us. Now, we're not done. Because Paul also, in verse number 18, goes on to say, behind door number two, something else is revealed. And we always like to focus on preaching about the righteousness and, and all of that's good. But the other side of that... Behind door number two, also, the wrath of God is revealed. Go read it. Romans 1, 18 and following. Behind that door is the wrath of God that's revealed on sin. And that downward slide begins with an unthankful heart. Neither were they thankful. And it ends in a reprobate mind. Because we reject the good news of God. We reject the provision of God for us to be right with Him. We reject that and we try our own way. We stiffen our neck against Him. We hold the truth. Or that is, we suppress the truth. So we have two things revealed. We have the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ, which can be imputed to us. We have the wrath of God revealed against sin. You have to have both or you don't have the God of the Bible. I'm sorry, you don't. Jesus said, blessed are they that do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Think about what he's saying here. If he's already covered being poor in spirit, if he's already covered mourning for sin, then I submit to you, If a person is poor in spirit and they're seeking righteousness, they've already got door number one and door number two figured out, don't they? They do. They are hungry after God's righteousness. Hungering and thirsting 
after God. Really, you could say it almost that way. We're hungry to do righteously. We're hungry, we're desiring righteousness in others. Wouldn't it be great, as that song sang, that everybody around us had a Christ-like spirit? Everywhere be found, send the light. I wish I could say that Denver had a Christ-like spirit. I don't have to go very far to find out that's not true. Broomfield, in a lot of ways, doesn't even have a Christ-like spirit. Everybody's in it for themselves. So selfish, the day in which we live. When's the last time somebody thought about somebody else that wasn't you know, living for God the way the Bible teaches? I don't, there's good people out there, don't get me wrong. I don't want to digress. But we desire to do righteously ourselves. We want to do that which pleases God when we're hungry for righteousness. We're desiring righteousness in others. We just want people to do right. Like old, like old uh, Bob Jones Sr. used to say all the time. I heard, I heard many of my mentors quote it from him. I never heard him say it myself. I wasn't privileged to hear that. But old Bob Jones Sr. would say, do right. You know, we sing that song, do right till the stars fall. Do right. Just do right. And if you ever get a chance to listen to his little 10-minute chapel talks, man, those are good things. They just, they just I'm thankful for his, his testimony, his influence. Bob Jones Sr., just do right. We want to do right. We want to see others do right. We desire God's righteousness on earth. I would say even so come Lord Jesus, because I know that's when it'll actually you know, be handled with a rod of iron. Until then, we put up with a fallen world. So let's look at this, desiring God's righteousness on earth. There's an action, there's an object, and there's a reward. The action is seen in hungering and thirsting. We're not talking about just a mere casual hunger here. We're not talking about just a casual thirst. The kind of hunger that Jesus is describing describing is is a gnawing desire that consumes His life. You ever seen somebody who was desperately hungry? I heard a story told about this. You know, let's say that... that, uh, I was going to, you were going to have me over for, I'll just use myself for this. You know, I'm the one that, I I know that when I come over to your place, uh, you're going to have some of the best food there. And I've heard rumors about how good your, your cooking is. And so I skip breakfast, right? And I come to your place hungry. And and so I come and knock on the door and pastor's there and you let pastor come in and and you say, oh, pastor, I'm so glad you're here. Here, let me come show you my garden. You take me out back and, you know, I skip breakfast and it's almost dinner time, you know, I'm pretty hungry. And you show me your garden and you say, look at all the beautiful flowers I planted. Aren't these flowers great? Yeah, those are some nice flowers. Oh, hey, pastor, let me show you my... St- I got this new book over here. And we spend some time in your library maybe. And you, you pull this new book off the shelf. And, and I'm going, that's a great book, but when do we eat? <laughs> maybe I don't say it out loud, but I've got that. By the time I sit down to the table, you, maybe you spread it before me. I know it's silly, but just, just follow it through. Okay, I sit down and the silverware's all there and everything's nice and... And you put some flowers on the table, and, and the book is there, and I'm looking around, and I'm saying, this isn't going to do it. When do we, you get it? When do we eat? Hungering. Now that, again, Jesus isn't talking about some casual hunger. I'm ready to eat. You ever been so hungry that you sit down and you feel like you need a cow? <laughs> eat a horse? We say that sometimes. This is a gnawing desire. You can't stop until... It's satisfied. Hungry is not enough. I would say you need to be starving. Starving. And if you've ever seen anyone who's starving eat, they leave nothing left. Nothing behind. They consume it all. 
So that's the action. That's the hungering. There's an object. What are we hungering after? Notice very carefully, Jesus said, Blessed are they that do hunger and thirst after what? Righteousness. Not, as Pastor Larson gave testimony, happiness. Jesus did say, did not say, blessed are they that hunger after happiness. That was a tremendous message on the difference between happiness and joy. There is a distinct difference. If you will hunger after righteousness, not happiness. So in, in Matthew, let's think about righteousness. Context is king, right? So how does Matthew use righteousness in in specificity. So, righteousness, I submit to you, Matthew is talking about conformity to God. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst to be conformed after God, to look more like Him today than I did yesterday. I'm hungry for righteousness. Those who hunger and thirst, they're not only hungry for a piece of bread. You want the whole loaf. I want all of Jesus. I want, He's my all in all. Not just a piece here and there. No, you're hungry for the whole thing. Not thirsty for just a glass of water, but you are thirsting for the whole pitcher. A drop won't do. I need the whole pitcher. Just bring the pitcher out. We're so thirsty. Not for a nice steak, but you're hungry for the whole cow. You ready to count? That's the object. So the action is hungering, that gnawing desire that just won't stop. It won't let up until you, till it's satisfied. And what are you hungering after? The object of your hunger has to be righteousness, has to be conforming to God. Always hungry to conform to God. What do you get for it? What's the reward? What's the promise? This is really deep. I'm glad you're sitting down. Hold on. They shall be filled. If you're looking for some magic formula, that's what Jesus said. They shall be filled. I can't explain that in words to you. I can only encourage you to experience it for yourself. Get hungry to be conformed after God and see how He fills you. See how He quenches. Oh, that's blessedness. Not mere happiness. That's contentment. That's trusting God with everything. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 38. As the heart panteth after the water brooks, so my soul panteth after Thee, O God. The hungry soul, or the full soul, loatheth the honeycomb. But to the hungry, every bitter thing is sweet. Lord, that's a bitter trial. But I'm hungry for you. And I'm so hungry to see you in this, to be conformed after the image of Christ, that this bitter trial is sweet to me now. Because all that dross is getting burned off. Blessed are they. Blessed are they that do hunger and thirst after righteousness. If you want a biblical illustration of this, I'm out of time. I don't have time to do it. Maybe this afternoon, just sit down sometime. Go through Revelation chapter 2. Go through Revelation chapter 3. Look at the promises that attend the overcomers. And that would be a good description, I think, of what the filling is that's promised here. The tree of life, a name in a white stone, 
what promises were given to the churches that would overcome through Christ. Faith is the victory that overcometh the world, John tells us. What a blessed, blessed truth that we have before us. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Uh, I read a story about a, a little classroom. There, was, um, there were some English students in there, and there was also a Chinese girl that was there. And uh, the teacher asked, you know, what does it mean to be, uh, what, does, what does salt do? You know, they were talking about salt. And this is interesting. It ties into this because Jesus talks about salt. And I'm closing with this, so we'll pack it up and, and we'll move out here in just a minute. But the teacher was asking, what is salt? And so the, the students were all listing, you know, salt is, is a preservative. You know, salt makes food taste good. Some of the little ones knew that. You know, as you put salt on it, it tastes better. And, and uh, they went on and, and, and on. But there was, there was something that little Chinese girl said that none of them had thought of. And she had experienced salt where she was from. And she piped up and she said to the teacher, well, salt makes you thirsty. Ye are the salt of the earth. I wonder if more people are not thirsting after God because Christians have lost their savor. Jesus is going to go on to say that the world might see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. You might be the only Bible somebody ever reads, right? You've heard that before. Salt. If you're going to be the salt that you need to be as a Christian, are you making people thirsty for God? Are you showing them who He really is? Do they yearn for Him after having been around you because your cup just runs over and goodness and mercy follow you all the days of your life? You're dwelling in the house of the Lord forever.